At that time, says the text, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. This sentence is simply relevant because people consider that that thing can happen and is possible, therefore. Now Herod, it's previous history, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This gruesome story of beheading of John the Baptist is having multiple secret ramifications in the life of the Bible. First of all, because John the Baptist is alleged to be, as Jesus has declared and will declare it again several times, that was nothing else but the one who came to prepare his own way, announced by the prophet foretold by the prophets and um, because of this John the Baptist is a very special person whom Jesus himself puts in the first position of importance like there is nobody born out of woman he says at some point who is greater than John therefore this John is very special and his destiny must have a special implication as you can see he is actually sacrificed at the whim of a young girl, uh, goaded by her mother, who was afraid to be kicked out and whatever. And in this way, she, he is simply the victim at the same time of the fear and duplicity of the king, at the same time of the pride and arrogance. It's an excellent example that um, this king actually, eventually, he didn't appear like he really wanted to do it, but because he had taken an oath and because of the guests, uh, he couldn't allow to make himself ashamed. And therefore, uh, it's kind of, if he would have been a man without so much ego, he would have said, and so what? If I promised, it doesn't matter, I'll take it back. It was a foolish promise or whatever. It's, I, I just spoke without thinking. So in this way, he could have saved the day if he really wanted, but it was again a matter of demonstrating the root of all evil things being in this pride, in this vanity that now he couldn't afford to lose face in front of his guests. And because of this he actually did something much worse in the image of the great existence because he had a prophet, and not any prophet, but John the Baptist for the case, beheaded, sacrificed to his own ridiculous vanity. So in that way, uh, 
it is significant because you see as a mechanism it's obvious that eventually who would eliminate a prophet from this world it would be the demons of course it is the demons who don't like a prophet uh, to be in this world and did the demons make him break his neck no the demons actually inspired Herod they pressed on all the soft spots of Herod they goaded him and goaded him they inspired Herodias his wife or concubine they inspired her to go to her daughter and whatever and by this chain of thing you see how subtle sometimes the influence of such entities can be when such entities want to make you give up your spiritual practice or when such entities want to destroy or do things it will come from the most unexpected part sometimes you can say wow for such a small issue a man like John was beheaded no John was beheaded because the demons hated him that's the reason for which he was beheaded Herod was just an instrument of this and this is happening all the time when you study spiritual history you see that people who reach the spiritual proeminence often mysteriously others around them turn against them people turn even against Francis of Assisi the people of his own town and of his own region they turn against him because Francis of Assisi was a pain in the neck he was showing them how to be genuine how to be pure and they were just lazy and greedy and everything and it was most simple to kill him to try of course they didn't kill him actually they tortured him at some time they killed one of his disciples they demolished and burned his church they did similar things like this this is always the deed of demons and the guilt of people like Herod and the others is that they are gullible they are susceptible to this they are telepathically open to be influenced by such entities if they would be pure and have principles the demons would not be able to go beyond a certain limit but because these people have such a strong ego then somehow they are they can be tricked into going beyond themselves you can see even here it's something on the edge Herod wanted but actually he didn't want he had the guy in the prison but he was hesitating to kill him or not because actually he was afraid of the people and whatever other reasons were and he had to in the, his wife through their daughter or through her daughter she had to insist and to trick and to push and to use everything to get this man beyond limit that's the way the demonic forces act remember always that you cannot expect a Hollywood spectacular poltergeist like uh, action of the demons they act through the minds of people exerting a 25% additional pressure which simply breaks the balance and get that person to do something stupid you can be sure that when he got late in life actually Herod regretted what he did to John or whatever but it was too late to turn it back also a few things are to be said here there is a very strange story in the Christian lore it is brought specially by the Gnostic Christianity which actually states that uh, funny enough although she was the instrument through which he got beheaded this daughter of Herodia of the concubine of Herod because she was not his wife she had been the wife of his brother so she was his sister-in-law or whatever 
this, uh, the, the daughter of this Herodia was actually somehow in love with John the Baptist and this is kind of an act of release ultimately. There are theories in Gnostic Christianity which claim no more and no less that this daughter of the Herodia, whatever was his name, Salome, I think the church mentions her name was, that uh, this Salome was actually the alchemic bride of John the Baptist, that she was his sister's soul, that somehow there was a very powerful destiny relating these two men, John and this girl, who, strangely enough, has been instrumental in his death, but at the same time she was like his great love, or whatever, uh, they were like meant for each other in this meaning of platonic halves. And therefore, that this uh, killing of John, at the same time from a deeper spiritual standpoint, it has the meaning of a release, of an alchemic transformation of some sort. It's not very clear. I personally have not meditated for long at this issue. I know this information because I've heard it a couple of times uh, manipulated, like vehiculated. But uh, again, this is a pretty clear, a pretty unclear uh, issue, a pretty unclear statement which has its own pluses and minuses and it has not been fully explained. Uh, moreover, you can see here from the history that the head of John the Baptist and the body have been separated. Uh, as I told you, as far as my knowledge in Christian relics goes, they claim that they have the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter in a monastery in Mount Athos in Greece. So uh, that's as far as that relic has gone. Uh, also, finally, the death of John the Baptist is kind of the signal, the bell which announces to Jesus that now it's time to press it to the bottom. Until this time, there are a lot of things which did not happen. After this time you will see that Jesus suddenly reaches the transfiguration, the full manifestation of his Godhead. Jesus is in a complete dialogue with God and with his great predecessors, with Moses and Elijah. And finally Jesus announces his great mission. And moreover, Jesus announces that he is going to be crucified and that he is going to be put to death and he will resurrect. All this did not happen before. It's like it was necessary for this moment to happen. Either that Jesus waited deliberately for it to say, knowing it in advance, and saying, okay, now we go to the next stage, or that living in the present, living in the now, as he was supposed to do, Jesus in the moment when this happened, he realized that now the time of, if John was beheaded, and John said, I am not worthy to tie the laces of your sandals, then what would Jesus do when John was beheaded? It's kind of, he had to upgrade it to a level way beyond that, because beheading was one for the forerunner, for the uh, one who came forward, but uh, he as a Messiah, he would go like ten times over that thing. So in this way, the death of John the Baptist is the moment when somehow Jesus comes up, blurts out, shines through with the full level of divinity, and from that moment on he goes like even more. The great miracles start being more often, and uh, his message is kind of much more clear. You can say that in a certain way the death of John the Baptist 
inspires him or triggers something in him which tells him now things will go all the way. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. It already shows immediately introspection. What's the meaning of this? What does God want? Or whatever, whichever way you want to put it. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So, somewhere in the wilderness. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is kind of a constant. It happens most of the time, either one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily say that by a miracle, of course, some medical things are medical miracles. Healing somebody of a cancer is a miracle. Either you do it by Shankaprakshalana or by the power of the word. So in this way, uh, again I told you, there are old gospels, apocryphal, not accepted by the church, such as the gospel of truth was one of the most characteristic, which claim and describe different therapeutical methods used by Jesus in parallel, like the man was a great healer, in the meaning that he also used method, not always going straight to the level of performing miracles. His motivation is described here very clearly as compassion. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, <coughs> and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and, ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. This gives us an image of a gigantic miracle. If you count the bread for each person, you would reach to some, God knows, 10,000 breads or something like this, made out of five. Uh, if you would consider it a kind of materialization and put one per second, it would still amount to something like uh, three hours to materialize 10,000 breads. So there must be things to imagine such a thing that a man in a matter of half an hour would create uh, 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever, 15,000 breads and uh, fish and whatever uh, is uh, pretty surprising. It challenges any imagination how it was actually done. We don't have much information about this in the Christian tradition. The yogis have seen it in peculiar ways like, for example, Shivananda or Yogananda describe it in very peculiar, in very particular ways. First of all, the first issue which comes here is the story with the fish. If Jesus indeed gave fish to the people, it means that actually Jesus was not so adverse to eating at least fish, perhaps not meat, but at least fish. 
uh, this is a discussable issue in the Gospel of Truth or in the Gospel of the Twelve, I don't remember. Uh, the author goes to a great length to argue that the word used in Aramaic for fish is actually a neutral word which can mean food additives or side dish or something and therefore it's exactly you could even call the grape if you would have some bread, some bread and some grape the grape which you eat with the bread would be also called by the same uh, abracadabra word and therefore that the original word in Aramaic does not actually mean fish. On the other hand, we have all the associations, the symbols in early Christianity with fish and others, which might have forced the later Greek translator to do this comparison with fish. Uh, Jesus Christ himself in Greek, if you want to say Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is something which uh, is made of five words. I'm sorry, I cannot tell it to you in Greek. Jesus Christo, whatever Theos, whatever Theos would be God, and this actually amounts to ictus. And ictus, the word ictus, made of five letters in uh, Greek, means nothing else but fish. So therefore, there is a lot of things here. Uh, Jesus uh, using the symbol of the fish, uh, the stories with the fish and all the others, uh, on the other hand, if we make some intelligent connections and we think at the fact that the people whom Jesus uh, approached often, they are fishermen, they are living out of fishing around the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus himself at some point encourages or sponsors a miraculous fishing. He goes with them out in the sea and he fishes and the fishing is miraculous. Therefore, there you cannot really argue that they were fishing grapes out of the sea or whatever. So indeed it appears that given the geoclimatic conditions where these people live, that in the desert of Palestine in those days, if you didn't resort to that, the soil was kind of too dry and they did not have the high technology of today to do irrigations and other things. And therefore, um, basically what we are saying here, that it is plausible, it is credible, that actually we are talking actually about fish in this situation. This is one of the arguments which was used a lot by the Christian fundamentalists in uh, ridiculing any form of oriental spiritual practice based on compassion to animals and therefore on vegetarianism. Uh, they would say, well, if Jesus himself was all love and allowed people to eat fish, and then, of course, they will stretch it a little bit to whatever else, uh, then uh, why should you be uh, more Catholic than the Pope? Why should you be holier than whoever and refuse to eat fish when Jesus himself uh, did it? And that is why they would ridicule the idea of vegetarianism, compassion to animals or whatever. This is not always the case. Again, first of all, we don't know exactly a lot of things. The second is that the Essenes, the sect of the Essenians, uh, indeed was strictly vegetarian. The third is that if Jesus traveled to Buddhist lands and to Hindu lands in his youth, he definitely must have been confronted with strict vegetarianism because in India, both in the Jain, Hindu and Buddhist lore, people were strictly vegetarian at that time um, and therefore there are a lot of arguments pro and contra to this uh, issue if Jesus indeed encouraged that or not 
but remember that the geoclimatic conditions they can mean a lot actually for those people to take away the fish thing would mean like taking away a lot of things from them uh, possibly the survival of some of them and in this way it is always discussable how far this issue has gone on the other hand for your own information people like the fathers of the desert or the great great mystics very often when you read the Philokalia or the fathers of the desert like what they actually ate when you ask yourself what did these people like I don't know Simeon the Stylite or whoever Mary of Egypt or whoever these men and women what did they actually eat you find out with surprise that definitely they are vegetarian that means that fish was not part of their diet and you find out that uh, actually they ate a food which would be considered very severe these people were in a kind of perpetual Oshava diet the ideal food of the people living like this was dry grains that means you would eat cereals, grains uh, but even those not too watery because if you drink too much water and make them too juicy uh, it's kind of too much Svadhisthana so these people would eat dry rice, dry wheat, things like this like as severe as one can conceive it and not even oil and things like this surely there are degrees here but fact is that the great people the great saints they actually did feel an urge to stay away definitely from meat and actually to stay away even from fish are there examples where different saints were eating things such as fish yes there should probably be many I have read recently reread recently a paragraph from the book of Milarepa where Milarepa himself at some point is given meat and he eats it if you report that to the conditions of Tibet where his body was weakened and ruined and a little meat would give him something which he hadn't seen for 12 years or God knows how long then again it is conceivable that yes you can read in the, without any doubt in the history of Milarepa that actually at some point and perhaps several times in his life he actually did enjoy even when he was a great yogi in eating a meat dish or something like this on the other hand others who did less yoga and who were more on bhakti, on Vedanta, on this dry path they were always afraid that fish and meat and other things would make them horny, too energetic, too juicy, too whatever and they always kept it down to very very dry food to very very austere food like eating only figs and uh, wheat and stuff like this I've met uh, also people going along with this kind of fuss and that's why I say here there are many differences and we cannot understand all of them fact is that here you have uh, one of the major miracles of Jesus it is also a miracle which has a uh, deep implication in giving people back their faith because people would believe what they would believe but then they are killed by the worries of every day it's like yeah yeah right we go with this guy and pray in the desert but then when we come home who is going to put bread on our table that means life is tough you know you go and go and dream and dream and pray and pray and you are an idealist but in the end uh, it comes down to survival, it comes down to bread and fish, it comes down to the daily life. 
So for many people that would be one of the major obstacles in their religious surrender. It's like, as Nietzsche said, God is dead. Even if there is a God out there, he doesn't seem to be able to bring food on your table. So if you are not working or not making something, you will die of starvation. And therefore, even people who go spiritual, they still have to earn some living because their stomachs are still uh, in need of some uh, food. Here, you have the equivalent of what Jesus said when he said, live like the birds of the sky and like the lilies of the field. And it is exactly the equivalent of the faith of the old Israelites who lived with the manna from the heaven, as I told you about this mysterious fact of history. Basically, here is the economical proof that yes, God can do even that, in the meaning that many people say, well, what if everybody on this planet would do yoga? Then who will produce electricity? Who will plow the fields and make food? Who will, have, who will make children? Who will? The world would go down if everybody on this planet would be spiritual. The answer can be no, because children can be born without a sexual contact as well, if you are the Satya Yuga type of person. And at the same time, food can come out of heaven. As Jesus here simply seems to produce food in, in tons, in huge amounts, directly out of heaven and he seems to be inexhaustible because not long after this he does it again. He just does the same miracle once more. So in this way uh, this is kind of showing to people that yes, because many people say well yeah God can do many things but God is so detached he is not mixing in the lower parts of this life so when it comes to prayer God will perhaps answer to you but when it comes to bread you have to sweat for it, because there God doesn't mix. It's not true. Jesus shows God mixes even in your making of bread. You want bread out of heaven, you should be like Jesus, and then you'd have bread and fish out of heaven, and Jesus didn't need to plow the land to make bread for 10,000 people, or whatever they were. So in this way, this is a formidable answer, which shows something on the low levels, which is even more precious because of that. Also, in terms of yoga, you should remember that this materialization, because Jesus here does a materialization, but as you can see, funny enough, he asks, how, what do you have? And he says, we have only five loaves. And he says, bring them here to me. He doesn't say, I'm going to make 10,000 more. He says, bring them here to me. That means somehow, mysteriously, he seems to use those five as a model, as a kind of archetype, as a kind of copy. He does a copycat of those loaves of bread. He does not actually uh, reinvent the loaves of bread. And the same thing is happening when he does it the second time. So as long as there is left only one, Jesus can make another 10,000 out of that one. But he is not trying to make it without a model, which is quite mysterious. This is a way of operation which Yoga, Svara Yoga describes as belonging to Ajna Chakra, and Paramahamsa Yogananda describes as belonging to Vishuddha Chakra, 
to working with ether, with akasha, that the materialization of things of this world needs to be a mixture of prana from Ajna Chakra, the ultimate energy, with Akasha from Vishuddha Chakra. It's a combined city of Ajna and Vishuddha Chakra taken to perfection. In this way, this city is pretty incomprehensible that somebody can create things out of the blue. If somebody can create 10,000 breads in 30 minutes, or in 30 seconds for the case, because we don't know really how quick it happened, then things could go on like this uh, with anything else. And of course, the final idiosyncrasy of the then uh, Jewish environment, where people are counted according to men, which again tells us about the status of women in that society. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Those are not numbers, they are auxiliary beings. The ones who are accounted for are the men, actually. This is uh, something which has been preserved more in Judaism, while in Christianity, uh, as you know, many women have become saints and so on, and it's a different story with baptism for all and so on. I will not come back to that. I will, first of all, continue with our text. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Obviously, again, the man was avoiding fuss. The man was avoiding popularity. Immediately, he got lost. He sent his disciples. He dismissed the crowd. He didn't want out of this. Like people would say, well, you gave us dinner, give us breakfast also, right? You know how people are. They would become naughty. They would become shameless. So it's kind of to preserve the divine character of it. It's a one-timer and then Jesus suddenly, shyly disappears, goes away. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Here you have it again. He sometimes goes in loneliness and here he is, the Son of God who kind of knows everything and can everything and is everything. Nevertheless, sometimes he goes by himself and says the text, prays, whatever that prayer is. Uh, that prayer in this case means, of course, much more than prayer. It means uh, samadhi, it means in this case union, mystic union. But you can say, why would such a man need to do it if he was already all the time in samadhi? and so on. That's another mystery by which you can see some degrees that even in the case of such a person, some reinforcement because the, the rhythm of daily life, like he did this, he took a lot of karma, now his ego could inflate because people said, wow, this guy can make 10,000 bread in 10 minutes, wow, and whatever, and therefore there was need for cleansing, for purifying the lower tattvas the lower levels of the being of some of these parasite things. So you see here very clearly a mechanism, a very private mechanism in the case of Jesus. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. 
But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Here you see immediately that out of all of them, Peter is the naughty one all the time. He was not selected without a reason. He has a leadership. He has a manipura. He is fiery. There is something with this Peter because always he is the one who steps forward and talks and asks the most outrageous things or whatever. He is not, ash he is not ashamed. He is not afraid. He is more manipuristic than the others. He kind of deserves in a certain way to be a little bit like you would presume in terms of yoga knowledge that this uh, Peter was perhaps a fire sign astrologically. He behaves a little bit like a ram or like a lion or like something. He is a little bit outgoing like this. He has some of this energy. And immediately he dares. He says, well, if it's you, make me also walk on water like you do. It's a pretty bold request. Come, he says. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? The essence of walking on water is said plainly. Why did you doubt? That means as long as he believed, he had those 25 seconds of belief in the beginning. Wow, he was elated. But then afterwards, unfortunately, his mental monkey moved. It's like you try to say, who am I? I am. And 25 seconds it works. And after 25 seconds your mind tricks you and pushes you to think about something. This man also resisted some 25 seconds to walk on water in that condition of elation. And then suddenly his mind wobbled. His mental monkey said, but uh, the wind, but uh, the waves. But uh, what if? And this what if was fatal because the effect immediately started vanishing. He started sinking. He didn't sink out of, of a sudden, but nevertheless he started sinking. Therefore, it, it was all a matter of belief. How do these paranormal things happen? By believing in them, I told you. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you move the mountains. Therefore, whoever would like to perform miracles has to believe faith, has to build faith as much as a mustard seed. How do you build faith? For example, by self-suggestion, by self-hypnotic things. That is why you can say that that part of yoga is about building faith. When you believe, you do it. As long as your mental monkey says, but uh, then it doesn't work. So you can see it very clear. Jesus told him, tells him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt is terrible, actually. You see very well that this dubito of Descartes, dubito ergo cogito, is a complete mistake from the standpoint of Jesus, because Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you should doubt. Doubt is very healthy sometimes. He asks Peter, why did you doubt? There is no doubt in me, why there is any doubt in you at this point? Why did you doubt? Therefore, this is exactly the shortcoming of the limited mind. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. 
And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Now the man was already starting having a reputation, obviously. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. From this moment on, you can see more and more that Jesus pumps his heart and there appears also the effect. After you have done something like this for one year, then people start believing so much because it has happened to everybody before them that it's kind of you don't even need to do anything because their belief does everything. This is the so-called charismatic effect where once charisma starts, it's like an avalanche effect and it kind of sweeps everybody in the way. It is a volatile effect. In the case of Jesus, at some point, yes, it did stop uh, in the moment when he wished it so. But nevertheless, this charismatic effect is sometimes producing effects even of collective hysteria. You can see sometimes or hear about example, uh, examples of miraculous healing, like in some of these evangelist TV shows in America or whatever, where some of these firebrand exotic preachers, some of them being plainly mentally sick or weirdos, they are coming up and they are coming with hallelujah brother and all the shit which they can come up with and they whip up people in such a frenzy and some of these Zvadistanistic people who are naive and uh, candid and credulous and gullible and just confused like this, they whip themselves up so much into it that actually they start believing and suddenly you see people with crutches standing up and throwing their crutches and saying, Hallelujah, the Lord has healed me, and so on. And actually sometimes they result plain, miraculous efforts. Effect, there are people who would go, I mean, this effect is so easy to speculate that it can work even in things which are completely untrue, like the kings of France were having a charisma, they could heal, I don't know what, skin disease. Funny enough, which was kind of a ridiculous thing, People like Napoleon and Hitler were credited with charismatic healing power, holiness or whatever, which sounds completely ridiculous and completely absurd after all. And uh, basically this charisma uh, triggers a lot of things out of control. Some of them would actually not even be fundamental, like grounded fundamentally in the Supreme Self or in God. That means there have been cases where people, for example, claimed that they saw Elvis Presley and he healed them in the famous Elvis Presley Church in America. There in this uh, temples, I'm sorry, where they do uh, healing, like I said, these evangelist mass uh, meetings or whatever, uh, you find temples where there are hundreds of crutches and wheelchairs which allegedly the people have left and got healed and stood up and so on. The sad truth is that if you would call for those people, you will see that they discreetly bought themselves another wheelchair and they are back in the wheelchair, that they had a kind of explosion of something, enthusiasm, faith, which lasted them for three days or whatever, and afterwards they withered back to their previous condition. That means there is an energy, a hysteric energy, which is given by the crowd. There, is, there exists a kind of collective hysteria, which works on Zvadistana mainly, and which may create that when thousands of people are gathered in a place, especially in religious ways, there happen all kinds of things. 
This is the secret of all kind of great sect leaders, a la Jim Jones or the Reverend Moon of Korea and so on, who use exactly this. They whip up people's feelings to a frenzy, and then in that frenzy a lot of things can happen. It was something which even Rajneesh did in Pune, having thousands of young people dancing in frenzy and whirling and shaking and screaming and freaking out and playing high drum music and using stroboscopic light on them, getting them to a point where some of them uh, had either they thought that they had visions or they got healed or whatever. It was all a very clever use of mass psychology, of the collective hysteria type of thing, where phenomena can be whipped up to this level. That is why generally <coughs> the more decent religions, they don't create such things because they know they are short-lived and they belong to a hysteria. That is why <coughs> more decent religions they try to limit this effect that when crowds are together, like, I don't know, in the St. Peter place in Vatican celebrating Christmas or whatever, that there should be a certain kind of calmness and kind of chanting and so on, but not whipped up to a frenzy, because the frenzy uh, can sometimes generate false miracles. Therefore, here there will be a lot of phenomena which can be coupled with that. I'm again not uh, having the time to go more into this, but just to see that now it came to the, the, the sick. So much was the faith of people already, because it had happened before, that they just begged that the sick should be allowed to touch the edge of the mantle, the edge of the cloak, and all who touched him were healed, says the Bible. That means it's already over the top. It's already a big power flowing there. There is a dialogue between grace and people's faith. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. That again is one of the things which definitely would irritate a man like Jesus because kind of clinging to something ritual, formal, external. And Jesus of course hops into it immediately. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother and Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me, it is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Basically, Jesus is using a pretty thin argument. He takes something from the theology of Jews you, if you want to read it again, that in a certain ritual you actually have to say this is not for you, it is for God, and basically you kind of reject uh, the issue of honoring your father, which would sound reasonable, right? Because everybody would say, and Jesus himself says it some other time, uh, you should have no father on earth, your father should be the one father in heaven. 
but now he comes and takes them to theology. It says there are many contradictions in your theology as well. You say honor your father, but then when it comes to honor him, you say no, all the honor belongs to God, and you refuse him that honor. Therefore you dishonor your father. <clears throat> Therefore you see, you yourself break the law. He basically is trying to show them that no written law can cover the myriads of issues appearing in daily life, in real life. A law can be valid only generally, orientatively, but else a law cannot cover, especially a simplified religious law, cannot cover all the issues that may appear century after century in the evolution of mankind. And he simply wants to show them it's anyhow impossible to observe the laws a la lettre, to the letter of the law. Because look, even you who pretend you are teachers, you do things which kind of contradict each other logically. And he is very quick in just labeling them hypocrites. The story of their hypocrisy is deeper. It's not because of this particular thing. They are hypocrites because they are egoists, because they are powerful people with a great vanity and ego who feel threatened by a carpenter from Nazareth or whoever this guy was, and they feel threatened that this man who is not part of their circle, who is not uh, a raven like the others, who is not a wolf in their pack of wolves, is suddenly coming and becoming a bigger prophet than them, is becoming, he, he can make the law, he can rewrite the rules, and basically, if it were one of us, then at least we would have known that he would write, rewrite the rules with consideration for our own things. But this young man is wild and completely unconventional, and if we let him free, he's just going to rewrite everything in a very peculiar way, where he simply has no respect for us, and he doesn't care, and he is just scratching and wiping the slate clean, and starts from scratch, starts from zero with all the history. We can't have that, can we? And therefore, their hypocrisy is basically their ego, and their secret desire to to lock him, to confuse him, to ask him stupid questions. All the time they come with this secret desire to see him embarrassed, to see him shamed, to see him put in difficulty, and this is actually the issue there. So he continues by saying, Isaiah, the prophet, was right when he prophesied about you. These people, quote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. This is a very, very, very strong statement which says this is lip service. This is the religion of the day has become lip service. How true he is. Look at the religion of today which is an other lip service perhaps even more hilarious than the one in his days. So he simply says this is lip service, it's not from the heart, and he actually pushes onto an issue which is very delicate, because he challenges here the very efficiency of the Jewish religion. At that time, he says, is your religion efficient anymore? Because he says, from prophet Isaiah, 500 years before, or whatever it was, they worship me in vain. That means it's kind of, they will get nothing out of it, People go with their lamps to the temple or whatever rituals they do, they worship me in vain. It's kind of 
it's dead, you know, these people are singing to a closed door, they are knocking to a walled up door, uh, it's never going to open, you know, they are beating at the wrong door, knocking at the wrong door. So basically, here he instills something which indeed these people would not accept. He is indeed in this way very naughty, he is pushing it really hard, because basically he reminds men of them of this prophecy, which he says, they worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. He says, all these rules which are in the Talmud or whatever, they are way beyond the Ten Commandments of Moses and whatever, these are rules taught by men. And therefore, he denies the divinity of all these codes of conduct, that you should wash your hands, that you should do this, like these are not made by God. And in this way, now, of course, such a statement would automatically provoke madness at those who are in charge of the religion of the day. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. This is another argument for which the proponents of the fact that if you are a Christian, you can eat a little fish or whatever. It's kind of, why should you be perfectly vegetarian and clean? Because even Jesus said that what you put inside your mouth is not necessarily making you unclean. I must admit again that exactly as the Tibetans did that, even Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, I don't remember, I didn't read it in the detail to see if he actually made any demonstration of breaking his own vows of uh, vegetarianism because he was a Brahmin and he was supposed to be so but he was talking pretty relaxedly about this issue and actually Ramakrishna said it clearly if you are spiritual and you eat impure food your food is purified by your spirituality and becomes wholesome and holy and if you are impure and unspiritual even when you eat the most sattvic food it becomes like poison in your body and brings you down and kills you Basically, he would say in the words of Jesus that the more important is the spirituality, that you should not stick to the rules. On the other hand, as a yogi, I would say, but if you at the same time have the opportunity of eating clean without too much effort, why not? It would be then sadistic or masochistic rather to put shitty food in you just to prove the words of Ramakrishna or of Jesus. They don't say you should do it on purpose. They say if you are pushed to the extreme, this doesn't become the most important issue in your life, as we spoke so often in our lectures of vegetarianism. So Jesus defines to people what is clean and unclean as spirituality. They then, the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Which is, of course, you can understand it immediately. He replied, Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. This is a hard statement because he basically declares these Pharisees not God's own. He says, Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled out by the roots. That means these people are plants not planted by my father. It's like they are weeds. They are those already belonging to the demons. It's another hard statement 
way unacceptable. He says, these people are the weeds that will be thrown in the fire at the end of time. It is a very, very hard statement. And he simply says, leave them, they are blind guides. And he gives his famous parable, which says, if the blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Remember that always, because your first duty is paradoxically not towards the others, but towards yourself. Many people, professing a Svadistanistically confused uh, type of compassion, which is actually not compassion, but a secret demonic urge to give up meditation and spiritual practice and to become snobbish, social, to lose yourself into the matrix like a moth in the flame of a candle, they come with all kinds of silly arguments such as, isn't it egoistic to sit at home and meditate and care for your nirvana while so many people suffer on earth? Shouldn't you rather go out and help people? Isn't that actually the message of love? No. The message of love is, if a blind man leads another blind man, they will both end into a pit. And uh, the Vedas say very clearly, first, save yourself. That means... The priority is very clear. Anybody tries to play Messiah, it's a very bad idea. It's a very, very bad idea because somebody blind will lead you in a blind spot, in a ditch, in a pit as well. Therefore, uh, the idea is very clear. One must first achieve sight. One must first see the truth. One must first be able to identify the divine to reach the higher consciousness. That is why this is a pernicious, it's an inexact question when people come up with this and they say, well, isn't yoga an egoistic thing? Aren't yogis egoistic? I think I can do it in another way. Unfortunately, this is usually the demons who tell you get out of your home and don't do meditation anymore and waste yourself out there in the world. The yogis say, yes, give yourself to the world after you reach samadhi. That means the order is very clear. If you try to give yourself to the world before, a blind man will lead another blind man and they will both end into a pit. The implication is very clear. That is why, remember that there is something fundamental in this about the responsibilities that you have as a human being. The main responsibility is to yourself. Ignore all these kind of fake excuses that now you don't want to do this because you have to help somebody. Surely, it doesn't mean that the yogis should not help. They help as much as they can, but they help without destroying their own spiritual practice. That price is not to be paid. The Buddha, when his family and palace was spoiling his spiritual practice, he ran away from home, although he made them suffer. The priority is clear. If you can help people while you do what is spiritual, do so, it's beautiful. But remember that the first priority always comes on this one's spiritual development. And then Peter said, the same bold one, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, slander, these are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Basically, this is the Kriya Yoga idea. Among the purity of the heart and the purity of your hands, the purity of the heart is a million times more important. And therefore, again, nobody says that you should not wash your hands. But if you are in a hurry or carried on by a mysterious enthusiasm, forget about the hands. That enthusiasm, that mystical thing, that beautiful spiritual thing is a million times more valuable than clinging to some minor things there. And that is why, again and again, Jesus here gives a beautiful perspective of purity and impurity on profound levels and on deep levels. Sure, his statements can be argued because what you put in your mouth doesn't directly come out the other way, right? It is assimilated partly by the body. So basically you can say if you put some shitty, something shitty in your body, it will partly stay in your body. In this way, if you drink poison, it will not just come out to the other part, but at the same time it will poison you meanwhile. So in this way, it is not a mathematically accurate statement, it is a relatively accurate statement just to make a point. He says food is food, it goes in, it comes out, like the body is in a continual change, but the heart, by which he means the soul, the essence of you, your own soul, if your soul is an ugly soul, you come out all the time with all these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. This is an example of the impurity which comes out of one's impure soul levels. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So for the time being, he did not universalize. He had the moment of opening with a centurion, with a Roman soldier, when he said, wow, what a faith this man is. It gave him ideas, but he still did not grow to a universal mission. You can see that he is about to take off. It's kind of he himself develops in the meaning of understanding where he is supposed to go with this. He is not yet contemplating a planetary mission. He is contemplating a mission for those people right there. He says the sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. This is a pretty, uh, raw, pretty raw statement coming from the fact that the Jews in their traditional literature at that time they had the Talmudic injunction that all the other people, the Gentiles, the tribes around who were not Jewish by religion, they were cattle, they were subhuman. It is some of these uh, things from the fundamentalistic Judaism which has disturbed some people along history uh, because of some of these old-fashioned uh, religious things. And basically he compares this woman and her breed with dogs. 
Of course, he uses it as a metaphor, and of course, he uses it to test her faith in the end, because he is, he is universal and compassionate. But nevertheless, he says, you know, and moreover, he says, it's like I'm taking something from those and giving it to you, which is meaning that there is a kind of, he contemplates like there is a limited amount to be given, and if I take this, somebody of my own people will be deprived of this. And this woman is indeed a smart woman and she is also very humble and she knows her place because she says, yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You see, in this way, this is a test. Like, let's see your faith. The, generally, the Jews of that time... They considered that because they were monotheistic, they had a real ardent faith, and the other people who were worshipping golden calves or what God knows what they were worshipping, the Gentiles, the tribes around, which were heathen, pagan, whatever you want to call them, those people, they did have only a formal faith, a ridiculous faith, an absurd faith, an inferior faith, because it was not based on monotheism on the belief in one God that is supreme. And that is why they were like taken down, they were looked down upon. In the Jewish environment it's like, you know, these people are not even up to our knee as a level of spirituality because they are just worshipping some stupid pieces of stone and they are just having some anemic, idiotic rituals and their faith is just limited to get crops and fertility or whatever, and it's kind of, what religion is this? Where is the real God, the, the, the cry of the soul, the aspiration, the, this? The Jews at that time still felt the superiority of this monotheistic option that God is one. And therefore, in this way, Jesus is testing her, like, let's see how big your faith is. Even if I'm squeezing you a little bit and denying you, will you insist? Will you really believe? And this woman is full of faith. First of all, she never doubts that he can do that. And she insists beyond the beyond. And she says, you have to grant this to me. Because even as a dog, I have my rights. I'm still a child of God. Such acceptation of one's faith that yes, I might be a dog. It's kind of so humble that automatically compels a reply, a divine reply. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Again, it's three days already as a long time. So indeed their faith has been put to a great test. They have been there a long time. I do not want to send them away hungry <coughs> or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? You see, the disciples still have doubts. They don't say, you did it the other day, you can do it again. It's kind of, they still have the doubts. Maybe we didn't see right. 
<coughs> maybe it was a one-timer, maybe his powers are over today, or whatever. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. It repeats mm -hmm. the scene identically, basically. They all ate and were very satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. That would be much more than the original amount. Even it's put there in the text to show the disproportion of what has happened to realize that this was not a David Copperfield trick. It's simply mathematically, materially impossible. <coughs> the number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Well, we have time to go a little bit more. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. It's the same manipuristic, sarcastic, skeptical, cynical view which Jesus detested so much. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. That simply means, what do you want to see? Do you think people are coming and the lame are getting healed just like this? How would you do that? Can somebody do that? I mean, you can't you see? It's kind of obvious. If you would be intelligent, you would see. It's like reading the sky. It's, if you can read the sky, you should be able to. What miracle do you need? He tells them you are blind. And he says with his usual reproach, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous thing, sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah, which was mentioned before, if you remember, two times ago, when the sign of Jonah was an allusion to himself and his final resurrection. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against, against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? I mean, bread is nothing. I can do it. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He basically compared this teaching with the yeast in the bread, exactly as he compares the kingdom of heaven earlier with like a yeast in the bread, which is pervading and making it be what it is. And while the, the kingdom of heaven 
is the right yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees is the wrong yeast, it is the poison yeast which will destroy their lives. So this is because these people being in that environment, they are all the time not able to, di to distinguish, they are all the time afraid because of the religious superstitions of the day. It's very difficult when you live in a superstitious time, in a deeply religious and ignorant time, as much as Jesus was showing them and doing, these people all the time had this religious fear deeply ingrained into them. And moreover, they have been with Jesus for one year, two years, three years maximum. Not enough time to really transform so much. And therefore, uh, they were susceptible. I mean, they would all the time have these superstitious fears, like, are we doing really good? Uh, shouldn't we actually obey the rules of our ancestors' religion? And realizing that they would mix up a lot of things, good and bad, like this, Jesus gives them this teaching. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, here you see the opinions. But what about you, he asked, what do you say I am? Simon Peter, as usual, answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Both these are huge statements, because the Messiah is the cornerstone of the Jewish religion, and the Son of God is an idea which goes even beyond that, because to proclaim that God has a one Son, a special Son, a divine being, the Son of God, is kind of already going over the top and it is challenging the very foundations of that theology. And therefore both of them are super bold statements. It's like now, here and now, we are living in the presence of the infinite. You know, it's the day of days. This is the day of the miracle. And thus what Peter says is indeed great. He takes a great responsibility to say such a huge thing. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He simply says this is an inspiration which somehow came to you spiritually, directly from yourself, directly from your Atman, because men don't know this, you couldn't have seen this, you couldn't have fathomed this, which is way beyond the level of understanding of the human being. And I tell you that you are Peter, so he called him Peter, actually the name is coming Petra, and Peter are from Greek and from Roman, and uh, therefore uh, the names can be many. I think in uh, Aramaic they call him Kepha or something like this, which would mean stone. I'm not absolutely sure, I will not vouch for that, but basically his name was changed from Simon his original name, it was changed by Jesus, like saying, you are strong as a rock, indeed you are the one who can take responsibility and do. History actually confirmed it, because Peter, in spite of his impulsiveness or what other things, he did a marvelous job in the end, and he indeed he secured the blossoming of Christianity as it did. So he was a great man, the way Jesus saw him.
and I tell you that you are Peter. You told me that I am Messiah. Now let me tell you who you are. You are Peter, and on this rock, because this would mean a rock, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Basically, Jesus gives here a prophecy which has been used a lot in time, which simply seems to say that Christianity, even weakened and debilitated, will somehow survive till the day of the doomsday, till the last day. Because even the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Somehow the message will be preserved in spite of many losses or whatever. I will give you, he says to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a huge sentence. It simply says, I'm going to give you the key to the kingdom of heaven, which means the possibility to enter, to make others enter. Therefore, this position of Peter was coveted, like he was the number one, not necessarily in spirituality, but like he was given some additional status, like he was given some additional responsibility. It's like he was given a certain power. Many people can have reached Samadhi in the history of this planet, but not all of them have been given by God the, a certain responsibility, like an administrative job. Jesus tells to Peter, besides the fact that you are going to see God and be enlightened, I am also going to give you an administrative position in my hierarchy and you are going to hold the keys of heaven. Ever since, Peter in the Christian folklore is represented with the keys of heaven and it is represented like being the one at the entrance of paradise from where all the silly jokes about that uh, issue, that position come. And basically, uh, it is because of this that the Roman Catholic Pope, who is supposed to be the direct descendant of Peter, because Peter eventually left his descendants in Rome, where he died crucified upside down, then uh, the Bishop of Rome, the Archbishop of Rome, which is nobody else than the Pope, is, uh, what is supposed to have a special position in the meaning that uh, his initiation is stronger than others. Uh, this, this was challenged in many ways along Christianity, but the, fine, uh, the final thing is that even metaphysicians like René Guénon, they claim that the initiation of the Pope has one degree below the initiation of archbishops, bishops, cardinals, that there is something special which is given only to the Pope. And that is why many popes have actually been beatified in time. And there are a lot of funny things with the Pope. Like, for example, take for uh, a small example the traditions about the death of the Pope. When a Pope dies, the rituals of the death of the Pope are that nobody should touch the body, just like in Tibetan yoga, but they are supposed to shave the top of the head, which actually is usually shaved every day uh, or whatever, periodically, so that this part will be free, like the samurai haircut, and uh, being free here, actually his skull is broken. The man who has the responsibility of this ritual has a special silver hammer, and they come and they tap him on the top of the head with this silver hammer, thus breaking the skull in this area, which is a purely Tibetan Indian technique, 
of opening Brahmarandra even mechanically by breaking the skull. There are so many references of various kinds, such as the legendary technique of the Pova in Tibet of like piercing the lid of the skull and thus making possible. So you would presume that a Pope dying in these special conditions and being tapped on the head and opened there, it's like challenged almost that the soul should exit the body through Brahmarandra, through the top of the head. And if the soul exits through Brahmarandra indeed, then we are talking about the person who reaches Samadhi in the moment of death. That is why indeed the initiations and the customs concerning the Pope are quite peculiar. And either the Pope is himself consciously a spiritual being or not, because there have been examples in history of popes who haven't been quite that spiritual, psychologically, emotionally speaking. Nevertheless, this initiation which is given is giving a supreme power because uh, Jesus says, not only that I'll give you the keys, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a promise. It's the first time when Jesus gives, like, there will come something. There is a sequel to my story. I'll give you a power which you will exert in history and you will change the world with it. Later, he gives this power to his disciples because this power given to Peter, it is the power of priesthood. It is on account of this sentence and another one which Jesus says later, you will see, that the Christian priests were taught directly in the first centuries of Christianity that they can baptize, that they can forgive sins, that they can give absolution and confession and communion and all the others because Jesus told them, whatever you bind on earth, it will be like this in heaven. That's magic. That means you tell to a child, you are baptized in the name of the God, of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit by the name Walter, that child is baptized and it is written in the books of the angels with the name Walter and that's final. It's kind of where does the priest have that power from? Because most of the priests, I mean, forget about the Pope, but the priests, many of them are stupid assholes. And how will it come then that it should happen? Because Jesus gave this power. This is not their power. It is a superhuman thing which comes through a superhuman mechanism which doesn't depend of how smart or educated the priest is. It sometimes doesn't even depend of how holy or righteous he is, as long as he does what he is supposed to do properly. You remember that we talked in some evening meetings before about this, that this is the religious path, and this is the power of ritual that give Jesus, for example, gave an empowerment to be transmitted from man to man, from generation to generation, which as long as it is kept, un kept unchanged, it will always have power and it will always have. Not because those people have power. Those people don't have anything. Jesus has power and he has ordained it like this. And his power being quite colossal, automatically uh, he is able to implement that. Because as you will see, Jesus himself says in the end that I have got the right from God to do this. This is something which has been given to me like, okay, do it. You are allowed. It's a warrant. It's like suddenly God gave green light for this. So in this way, 
He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven, which is uh, the very essence of priesthood, and it gives, it puts a special imprint on the destiny of Peter and the direct followers of Peter, like the popes of today. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Again, modest, practicing a certain policy of his own, Jesus is still keeping a low profile while at the same time doing things bigger and bigger. From that time on, so now that things broke open and you see how it progresses, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. See, Jesus considered himself, even now, tempted by the devil. It's like even at this point, when he upgrades his mission more, because of the death of John the Baptist and all the others, now of course he, he is encountering with disbelief how great his belief in himself must be, not only to realize that he is the Messiah and he is everything, but that he is going to save the world and he is going to be killed and he is going to resurrect and whatever. And Peter is the first one who comes with his shitty lack of belief and says, no, this can't happen. And Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me. You, your skepticism kills me, you know. A few more like you, and I'll start doubting my own status. I'll start doubting my own mission. So he basically rebukes him. He gets out of this by inflaming himself, which is the way many spiritual people and yogis and others, they got out of trouble when they got confronted with something demonic or bad. It's kind of something comes up, it's like we said in Hatha Yoga Pradipika, you get ill, you double up your practice. It's kind of, you piss me off, I'm going to show you who I am. And it's kind of, uh, this Peter comes with his weakness to weaken me, Rah, I roar like a lion and do twice as much. You know, it's kind of, what are you trying to stop me from? You are a weakling, you are a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan, you know. It's kind of, uh, everything here is, Again, based on this faith, it's a matter of not destroying faith and Jesus, by pushing them to the next level, he actually has to fight with their lack of faith because now he's asking from them to believe in something even more crazy, even more deep. <coughs> so he says, you do not have in mind the things of God but the things of man. That's obvious. Peter at that time He's still just a man, and he cannot think according to the values of God. But Jesus obviously has seen the point, and he can. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, 
yet forfeits his soul. For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a long paragraph. First of all, Jesus describes a pattern which is a pretty special pattern. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In this way, he describes the perfect Christian life. The perfect Christian life is a life of self-denial and it is a life of carrying a cross. That is why the Christians who lived in the spirit of death, they never objected to martyrdom, they never objected to persecution, they never objected to... They considered that this is the cross that Jesus told them to carry. That means the harder it becomes, the more you are following to Jesus. That is also the reason why in Christianity people had this perfect submissive thing. Like uh, we are speaking another time about these rigid laws apparently about family, divorce, marriage and things. Today's people are searching for fun and an easy life. But the Christians living according to this, it's hard to say that they are searching for trouble because nobody searches for trouble, but at least they were accepting trouble with serenity. If a woman would be having a husband that is a drunk and beats her up, she would say, this is the cross which my Lord Jesus has asked me to carry. And therefore, I actually take pride, it is a glory for me to keep on going into this wretched life, and the more bitter it gets, the bigger will be my laurel crown in the end because I'm carrying the cross. Compared with Jesus who carried the cross of the crosses, mine is just a little thing. So basically Jesus actually gives here a pattern of life which is related with the arousing of Anahata Chakra, compassion. It is a, each religion in each great spirit who has created a religion, Allah, Buddha or whatever, they have somehow created a type of human being. That means, remember that in a certain way, the typical typology in the aura of a staunch Jew, of a staunch Christian, of a staunch Muslim, of a staunch Buddhism, of a staunch Hindu, and whatever, they are different because of a predominant chakra. For example, a staunch Zen Buddhist from Japan his aura, his temperament, his karma, his belief, the way what he acts from the universe, the way he reflects the universe, is very, very difficult from the way of a Christian who follows staunchly in the footpath of Jesus. It's like each religion proposes a type of human being. There is a kind of average typology which comes not because of Purusha, not because of Atman, because Atman, Purusha, Shiva, the transcendent, is the same, always the same. But it is a difference in Prakriti, that until you go there, you are building a certain scaffold. That means you build some psychological attributes, you build some mental characteristics, you build a lot of things. There is a pattern, a typology. 
that pattern is different from religion to religion. For example, the Sikhs of India, the Guru Nanak followers, they are super manipuristic. They are supposed to be big and strong and never to cut their hair, so they wear those big turbans, and every man is supposed to carry a knife with him all the time, and they are supposed to have a iron bracelet at their hand which will give to wear iron all the time is like amplifying the energy of Mars and basically the way Guru Nanak wanted his followers he wanted them tough and kicking ass he wanted to have his religion made of people who are Manipuristic powerful lions whatever the Sikhs of today in India they still reflect a little bit these weird patterns which were established in those days even through genetic selection and a few other weird themes like this. So basically you can say that every religion makes it different. The Sikhs are different from the Hindus and yet genetically they are supposed to be the same people. But if you go in India and you live in a Sikh community and if you live in a Hindu community you will see they are very different. Temperamentally, psychologically and even bodily the difference is overwhelming although those people are strictly from the same genetical stock they are not the result of any migration or gene mixture or anything. This is a consequence of the fact that the mind is the ultimate force. Beyond the spirit, which is transcendent, Atma, the first force of the universe when you start coming down in Prakriti, is the mind. The mind is the higher force. So if your mind believes you in a certain way, you become like this. It's like self-suggestion. I am what I am because I believe myself to be what I am. Well, when I am a Christian, through the collective subconscious mind of all my fellow Christians and through the education which I got from my mother and father, from the relatives, from the society, from the other children, from the village, from the school, from whatever, basically I believe myself to be one of these. And then automatically it's like I'm putting a, a mask on me, that means there is a certain pattern, I have to belong to this average typology. The typology which Jesus proposes to Christians is pretty frightening. That's why people are always having doubts. Because Jesus says, if you want really to be my own, you should deny yourself abnegation, it's not easy, and start carrying your cross. This is, it's a kind of wow, you know, it's kind of what kind of life am I going to have if I accept that my life is going to be self-denial and carrying a cross. It's almost like I'm asking for trouble. It's almost like I'm a compassionate man with a karmic vacuum cleaner going around and telling to the whole world, I don't know about you, but I'm a Christian and according to the wishes of my good Lord Jesus, I'm here to vacuum clean all the bad karma and all the troubles from all of you. I am the Lamb of God, just as my Master. I am about to give my life. I am here to take your troubles. I am compassionate. I am merciful. I am simply uh, going there. It's pretty terrible. Very few people would have such a mad strength to do such a thing, right? It's depending on a very, very peculiar understanding of Anahata Chakra. I promised since long time that I was going to read for you 
this uh, literally this from Kahlil Gibran or Kahlil Gibran whatever you want to read it like about love from the prophet yeah And now I'm going to read it as soon as the cassette starts on. Especially the part where he insists on the fact that the full dimension of love has something tragic in it. That love is blissful and at the same time there is something tragic. But there is a tragedy in love which is a grand tragedy. There is a tragedy in love which is grandiose, which is divine. It is the tragedy of God whose heart is bleeding with compassion because we are such miserable wretches that we are. Imagine the divine consciousness in its almightiness and understanding, in its purity and compassion, looking at people who live like animals and defile their souls and live in evil and darkness and wickedness and all the others. With such a great love, you can be sure that the heart of God, metaphorically speaking, is weeping with blood, because indeed there must be a suffering. And yet, God must allow Himself to suffer, because there is a mixture of love and pain, because in this pain there is a great bliss that the human beings, through these mistakes which they do, they actually grow up to be one with God eventually. So, this pain is not that bad after all. It is a pain which has a blissful thing to it, and yet it has tears to it. You Sometimes there have been authors who have noticed this, like Maria Alcoforado, the Portuguese writer who wrote her famous five letters on, on love. If you never read letters on love at the highest level, try to find out Maria Alcoforado's work. And of course, in literature, this is illustrated often by the literature of the Russians. The great Russians, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and others, they have this tragical dimension. Those of you who read a bit literature like The War and the Peace and the Karamazovs and the whatever, the Anna Karenina and so on, in such literature there is something very tragic. You can see the great soul of the Slavic people, because there is a lot of Anahata in the Russian soul. You can see this faith and heart, and at the same time there is something tragic. The characters are glorious, but at the same time there is a tragedy to it. Death is coming in the heart, and every time when you go to the full dimensions of the heart, many people understand that the heart is just to have a little bit of joy and to feel soft, but they are afraid to explore what actually the heart is in its full dimensions. Then said Almitra, speak to us of love. And he raised his head and looked upon the people, and there fell a stillness upon them. And with a great voice he said, when love beckons to you, follow him, though his ways are hard and steep. And when his wings enfold you, yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. And when he speaks to you, believe in him, though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. 
For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. That's it. It crowns you, but it crucifies you as well. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. It's breaking the attachment after all. It's this crucifixion is the alchemy, the crucible, the sublimation. Abandon your roots and move to heaven. Love is uprooting us from the earth and moving us to heaven. And then we have to detach. Even if it's with pain, we have to detach. That is why love is not always comfortable, but what a transformer it is. Like sheaves of corn, he gathers you unto himself. He threshes you to make you naked. He sifts you to free from your husks. He grinds you to whiteness. He nets you until you are pliant. And then he assigns you to his sacred fire that you may become the sacred bread for God's sacred feast. All these things shall love do unto you that you may know the secrets of your heart and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. But if in your fear, here is the paragraph, you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you, will, you shall laugh but not all your laughter and weep but not all of your tears. Love gives naught but itself and takes naught but from itself. Love possesses not nor would it be possessed. For love is sufficient unto love. When you love, you should not say, God is in my heart, but rather, I am in the heart of God. And think not you can direct the course of love, for love, if it finds you worthy, directs your course. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires to melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night, to know the pain of too much tenderness, to be wounded by your own understanding of love, and to bleed willingly and joyfully, to wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving, to rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy, to return home at eventide with gratitude, and then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and the song of praise upon your lips. This wonderful, unique quote in the world literature about love is insisting again on this, that if you try to see in love only peace and pleasure, then cover your nakedness and walk out. You will love but you will not laugh to the bottom. You will cry, but not to the bottom. You don't really understand. You understand when you accept both sides of it. That means the tragic, gigantic dimension of it. Look at Jesus. Jesus is a tragic character. The man who embodies the greatest love of this planet is a great tragic character. He is the main actor in a big tragedy. He is bigger than the sun and the moon, and at the same time, what a tragedy, 
his life is what a misunderstanding, what a blunder is there, what a fiasco is there for some people, what a pain, what an agony. Therefore, this is the issue of love, and here Jesus again, I'll not go further than this, he is advocating a path of sacrifice. It's like really difficult. He said at some point, take my yoke because my yoke is easy. And, but after all, it's not that easy. It cannot be perfectly easy because and then everybody would do it. What's the difficulty? The difficulty is to accept I'm going to lose my life. I'm not going to do anything in this life. I'm lost. I just want God and that's all. I will be a fiasco from the standpoint of my career, from the standpoint of my family, from the standpoint of my name and fame, from any standpoint in this world, I'm just going to give my life to God and I'm going to carry a cross on my shoulder and I'm going to deny myself to live in abnegation, to live <coughs> in giving myself to others, giving myself to love, giving myself to the world. How many people would have the power to decide such a thing? Your Anahata Chakra must be as large as the sun to be able to take such a decision that you are going to lose everything to be able to find the infinite. What a path he is giving there. That is why this path of Bhakti Yoga is not as easy as it sounds. Many things literally like comparable to this, they have been in the life of Ramakrishna and in the life of others who have been very much into Bhakti. And when you look in, this, in the life of these big Bhakti ones, you see a little bit the same tragedy. That the life of Ramakrishna is joyful, but it is also a tragedy with his cancer and taking of karma and his striving so tremendously that eventually he becomes like an empty husk. He drained himself completely for his love of mankind, for his love of God, and so on. There is a bit of a tragedy there if you look at it through the eyes of his disciples or through the eyes of his wife or whatever. So in this way, uh, indeed here, Jesus is proposing a difficult path. He's proposing a path of sacrifice. In the same way, you find a similar pattern in the ways of the Buddhists, the Bodhisattva, the Tibetan Buddhists, that is. The Tibetan Buddhists who have gone a little bit more into Anahata Chakra through the understanding of compassion and love and the others, they have found mysteriously the same thing. The Bodhisattva ideals, they contain sometimes painful things, like one of the teachings of the Bodhisattva practice is that the Bodhisattva should try to do a pranayama like this. You inhale, and when it's like doing pranayama, and when you inhale, you inhale a dark gray fluid. You visualize the air that you in inhale like smoke, of the color of smoke. And then you say a prayer or whatever, you meditate keeping the air inside, and it transforms into golden light, and you shed it back when you exhale, you give it to the world. So basically you are like a pump. You take dark grey smoke and you give golden light. You give to the world compassion and cosmic love, what the golden light color stands for, and you are taking, because smoke, like energy, would mean stress, karma, negative karma. 
Many people would get goosebumps only at the thought of it. That means I can hardly cope with my own karma and I'm in the shit so often because of it and I'm fighting with it and now these guys want me to start taking the karma of the city and to give them golden light, fuck them, all the idiots out there and I'm supposed to just take... Who can cope with that? That means I must be crazy to breathe in the smoke of the black karma of all the world and so on. That means I can barely deal with myself. You see, it's a path of a sacrifice which is like inconceivable. You have to be crazy to be able to push it to such a level. It's really that you don't care about yourself and should you die of cancer like Ramakrishna or Maharishi, you don't care. You are ready to die of cancer for the sake of humanity or whatever. That is indeed pushing it to the limit, and it shows something of this tragic thing of bhakti. It is in, because in bhakti there appears not only this thing of the heart, but through this thing of the heart there appears a feeling of unity. Anahata is rejoining Sahasrara, and this mixture of Anahata with Sahasrara, which is archetypal, it takes us to the consciousness of the oneness of all. I am Brahman, I am Shiva, I am the universal consciousness and therefore I am the same with everybody else. And if I am you, then it's like Jesus, you will see how beautiful he says it, that I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me water and I was a prisoner and you came and visited me and actually you will say when did I did this because I never remember to have done this to Jesus. And he says whenever, whoever did this, to any of my little brethren on the, on, the, on the earth, he did it to me. Basically, I am every single human being. I am Atman. I am the consciousness that exists in everybody. Therefore, it's normal that I can love you the way I love myself. Because once I realized my nature and I have blossomed, then I realize that it is possible to blossom in the others as well and you are flowers as much as I am and we belong to the same tree, we are one and the same God. And because of this, love, bhakti, becomes unity. And if I am you, then if you suffer or if I suffer, it's the same. If you have cancer, it hurts me as much as if I have cancer, like Ramakrishna could feel people's pain and he could even scream with pain because he felt it organically, like an agony. And then, this is unity. This is the bhakti. This is the great abyss of the heart, that if you really dare to push the heart to the cosmic level, then you will discover amazing things, but they will have this grand, they will have a tinge of something tragic, that this humanity is a wonderful thing, and at the same time we are in a tragic situation because every person on this planet that crawls in filth and evil is actually a part of me crawling in that filth and evil and therefore the decadence of everybody is affecting me. The spiritual decadence of everybody is a stain on my cheek as well because I somehow am interrelated with everybody. And that is why compassion will push me to search, <coughs> to save the world, to help the world, because if I can help at least one person, at least I have done something to alleviate this tragic situation. 
the love at this cosmic ultimate dimension indeed has something scary, tragic. That's why you need to have the heart of a hero to be able to dare to go there because it's not easy. It's kind of you have to have a lot of courage to love the way Jesus has loved, to love the way Ramakrishna has loved, to love, to love all the way. And in this way, Jesus is so very clear, he repeats that whoever loses his life will, for me will save it and all the others. We commented that already, but he says very clearly, he must take up his cross and follow me. I told you, the story, if literally he says, take up the cross, it's discussable because at that time the story with the cross was not very, and it was not a typically Jewish way of punishment. So to say that somebody should take his cross is a much later language addition, apparently. So we don't know if Jesus said literally the cross, but the idea at least is preserved, that one is sacrificing oneself. In this way, when you read the lives of the great saints, you will see that they had these few constants. One, uh, extraordinary love for God, an extraordinary devotion and wish to reach that consciousness, and at the same time, they had this tragic understanding of love, that if necessary, you may have to take upon yourself your cross and walk. Sometimes, your cross can be even your daily practice. There have been fathers of the desert who even after they reached uh, enlightenment, they were doing a lot of spiritual efforts and people asked them, why do you, if you have seen God and if you have reached there, why do you keep standing up 12 hours every day in prayer like this? And they said, everybody has to take a cross. This is my cross. I'm crucifying myself for the world. It's not easy for me after I reached to stand up and to do more practice, which I'm doing for you, for you, and for you. And yet I'm doing it because God didn't ask me to crucify myself as a martyr. There have been people who have been martyrized, but my martyrdom is to sit here and do what I do. This is what the fathers of the desert, they called the day-to-day -day martyrdom, the everyday martyrdom, that you simply sit up, and do your practice like Milarepa and that's your martyrdom to the world. It's not easy because at that state of consciousness things are becoming a totally different perspective. When you'll start reaching states of Samadhi you'll see exactly what I mean by this. And he says the famous story or the famous sentence which you should always think of it what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul. That is the biggest confusion, that people are trying to gain the world, and meanwhile they are losing their soul. If you lose your soul, you have lost everything. That is why the priority is very clear. You can lose the whole world, but at the same time save your soul. That is truly what matters. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And then there comes the apotheotic, messianic, where he presents himself as the Lord of the hosts of angels, as the Son of God. He ends in this messianic way this paragraph, which then follows, but next time, next week, with the amazing issue, with the amazing episode of his transfiguration, which is completely over the top. But here he ends by saying, 
for the Son of Man, that Him is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here, that means His own disciples, not all of them perhaps, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This sentence is supposed to mean two things. <coughs> One, He was warning them that before they will die, they will reach enlightenment and they will see Him coming in glory, which was what happened 50 days after His crucifixion on the day of the Pentecost, as it is called, when the 12 disciples got enlightened and they reached their first state of Samadhi and they were blessed by the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, they simply started their great mission on this planet. So, he said, you are not going to die, that it will happen in the time of your lifetime, and it is also considered to be a reference that who are those some who are standing here, and because when will they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom? That can be a reference to the day of the judgment. So it's a reference that Jesus said, some, there is some here who will not die till the day of the judgment. This is supposed to be a secret reference which Jesus would have made of John the Apostle. The Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, which we will read probably next year because by the rhythm it goes, we'll never finish uh, all of them in this season. The Apostle John is supposed to have lived very long. He is the only one of the twelve Apostles who was never crucified or martyrized. All the other eleven they were crucified or martyrized, in case you didn't know. All of them, absolutely, plus others and others. But 11 out of 12 were, but not John. And John is supposed to have lived a long time, and then in Christianity there appeared this weird, weird tradition that actually John has moved to Shambhala, and he has become one of the rulers, if not the king of Shambhala, and as such he is physically immortal, and therefore indeed he would not taste death until the day of the judgment. He is still alive and waiting for the day of judgment to come, according to the promise of Jesus, who in this way would have made a kind of double entendre, a kind of magic promise that there is some here, one in this case, who will not taste death before the day of glory. This is supposed to have been the argumentation for that. The priest John, the Apostle John, has reached a form of physical immortality through the grace of God, through the grace of Jesus. I will not read more. With this we have finished the 16th paragraph. Let us see if we have any special questions, problems, issues, or comments, after which we will stop. Uh, about the blessing technique that you use in this school. Yes. And which body is supposed to work because you have this different blessing from each level of priest, like the priest, and then uh, can we speak about one specific level on which this the blessing level at the level where you do it as a beginner is supposed to work mostly on pranamaya kosha and manamaya kosha. Mostly. So you can who is the author for letters of love? I'm sorry? Who is the author for letters of love? Maria something. Okay. Alcoforado. 
Alcoseo. Alcoforado. One word. A L C O F O R A D O. It's the Portuguese letters. They are called all the love letters of Maria Alcoforado. Five letters. It's actually a very, very small brochure. There are just five letters. <laughs> Starting with the famous Vatican II Council in 1962 or whatever it was, the Catholic Church has made a lot of compromises on its spiritual position and the popes already starting with that level and on, they have started mingling more and more in politics, weird things and so on. The Catholic Church and the popes themselves, they were afflicted already before, but at least 500 years ago they were not afflicted by mixture with secret societies, uh, demon worship, Luciferianism or whatever, which allegations are brought today about some of the things happening in Vatican. At least in those days the popes were plagued only by their demonic egoism. If one of these popes was a non-spiritualized guy and he was a proud asshole and uh, arrogant fellow, then he used his tremendous punch, his tremendous power to serve his own pride, to serve his own uh, megalomanic ego, and that was bad enough. But unfortunately, in modern times, we are witnessing a certain corruption from inside that the people who have been enemies to Christianity and who have hated the message of Jesus, they found that one of the ways to do it would be to undermine the church, not only from outside, like fighting against it a la Karl Marx, stand up and say religion is the opium of the masses, hang the priests, shoot them all, religion is a terrible thing, and so on. That's fighting it from outside. But you can fight it from inside, patiently, over generations, infiltrating your own people in its ranks, and applying politics and other things to get there. Basically, the conspiracy theorists of today, they tend to claim that the last popes were uh, the one three popes before John or whatever, and the one from now, that they are elected, uh, that already there are severe doubts about their purity of intent. In conspiracy theories, they claim that uh, in between them, there was just this John, John Paul I, who ruled only for 20 days or 28 days, and for whom everybody says this was one of the real ones, this was indeed... Uh, a more faithful one, a more pure one, and because of this he was murdered almost instantaneously because he intended to break the shit loose and to expose all this corruption because he was a more simple man, he was less of a politician and he was more of a spiritual person. And, uh, of course, he did not succeed, as history says. He died mysteriously and conspiracy theorists always claim that he was poisoned or whatever. The um, fact is that many of the things happening today, they do have some spirituality, but the spirituality 
which the church professes today is at least hilarious. That means when uh, the tops of the tops of what the church can produce is just some charity of the street children in Calcutta with Mother Teresa, that is a pretty pitiful state of the church. That means in the 4th century, John Cassian was walking on the Nile, was walking on water. Today it's just helping the children of the street in Calcutta. Not that that is bad, but that is way, way less than it was supposed to be and than it is planned to be. And that is why we are witnessing a severe, severe decadence. In the last 40 years, the Catholic Church is going to the, to the rats completely, going to the dogs completely. In that case, do you, do you think they still do the um, breaking of the skull? Is it well known? Yeah, they, they still, still do it. The rituals they do. They haven't uh, abdicated from the rituals. Some of them. Some of them they abdicated. As a whole, I'm not a, I was not born a Roman Catholic and I'm not one, so I don't know all the things which happen in this, but I've read some materials published by some of them on an internet site and others. And many of them complain that even at that level of the rituals and procedures, there is a lot of adulteration, that already 20, 30 years ago, they started changing the Mass. They are not supposed to change, because the Mass is made by Saint John Chrysostomus in the 4th century, and it is one of the common inheritance of Christianity. And the famous Missa Sacralis, the famous Missa Solemnis, the famous Mass, service, not supposed to be changed because it is kind of inspired to John Chrysostomus by the angels. This is what he and everybody accepted it for thousands of years, that this is a revelation from angels about how to perform the Mass to have maximum impact, to invoke the presence of Jesus. Therefore, this, this divine gift of the Mass cannot be changed. Well, in the last 20 years, they do change it and they make all kinds of improvised masses and like this, and this is considered by the fundamentalists to be one of the absolutely crazy things. Like you know the story with Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is in the scandal with Jesus now that there was. It appears that the family of Mel Gibson is part of that part of the Catholic Church who reject the Vatican II Council and all the things which followed after, and they stick to the original mass in Latin and to all the other things, because they simply say, you cannot, the, these guys, they did not have the moral authority to change 15 centuries of Christian history. At least if they would have walked on water and they would have shown signs that uh, they have a power from God and now God sent them, change this. But there is no sign whatsoever. These people were just some egoistic weirdos who suddenly came up that they were bored to do like this and now they wanted to do like this and like this and like that and this is just terrible in a, in a bigger picture it's kind of human phantasmagoria let us stop now it is late enough